Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes this week. And we're going to take a topic this week, not a book of the Bible, to discuss through a Christian worldview. And I just like to remind everybody, one of the things that is at the core of our mission at So We Speak is, is not just looking uh, at Scripture, but seeing the world through Scripture. So it's this chasm that is often hard to bridge between what you do in your quiet time in the morning and what you see on your Twitter timeline in the afternoon or what you see at work or, you know, with family and friends. I mean, it's, we have been given the Bible to apply it to real life, but sometimes it's really hard to bridge the gap between what we read about in scripture and what we're experiencing in our life. And so the goal with a lot of what we do, the weekly speak the podcast is not just to become better Bible readers, although that's at the heart of all worldview uh, discussions. The goal of what we're doing is to try to live more Christianly, to think Christianly in the world that we find ourselves in. And that creates all kinds of interesting material to talk about because we do live in a world that is not thinking Christianly, and I think increasingly so in the last few years. So the issue I want to take today is one that I covered on the Weekly Speak this week, and it's uh, the invitation of Max Licato to the Washington National Cathedral. Right. And this caused a little bit of a stir, as you would imagine. This this is a series of events, and I think that's why it's important for us to discuss today. Is it, this is not just an isolated case. It is, I think, kind of an egregious case. Right. But it has become kind of a routine case of... Run-of-the-mill evangelical gets invited to speak. It turns out they believe what all Christians have basically believed for the last 2,000 years. All of a sudden, they are pressured to be disinvited from speaking. So we saw this with Louis Giglio at the inauguration for President Obama. We've seen this in several high-profile cases of Christians being invited somewhere and then either being disinvited or, in this case, just being pressured to be disinvited but uh, this one really struck me because of where the invitation was given to and uh, the response. Yes. I was impressed that they invited him. And I was, because they didn't have to, and I would have no heartburn if they chose not to. But since they did, they got a little bit of uh, pushback and decided to kind of stick to their guns and say, no, we're going to let him preach. And by the way, I should mention that what he preached about was not a part of this uh, controversy. What he preached about was well-received, unity in our country and and that sort of thing. So what the topic of his sermon really had nothing to do with this. But after he spoke, the controversy didn't end at that point. Well, let's get get the facts of this then and and we can discuss it. So... Uh, Max Licato was invited several months ago to speak at the Washington National Cathedral, which is about as close to an American church, a church of the nation, as you get. Uh, Of course, we don't have a state church. We don't have like a Westminster Abbey or something like that in America. But this is pretty close. It's where the inauguration services are held. It's where several high-profile presidential events and funerals and all that have been held. Um, It's a place where lots of presidents attend church. It is the Episcopal Church in the United States of America. And that's a really important point, that it is an Episcopalian church. Um, So we typically think of Episcopalians, if you've been to an Episcopalian church, as 
high liturgy and very traditional mm-hmm. and uh in some ways, if you're from maybe a Baptist church or something like that, you go to an Episcopal church and you feel like you're in a Catholic church. Yeah. Because they've kept a lot of the same rituals and liturgies. However, in the last 40 years, let's say, the Episcopal church has increasingly become aligned with a very progressive agenda on social issues to where now, uh, you know, the issue is not just will the Episcopalian church ordain gay LGBTQ clergy perform weddings, right. but as we've seen in this case, can you take part in anything Episcopalian and have traditional biblical views on marriage? And I just want to say, not every Episcopalian church is like this. There mm-hmm. is there there are some carve outs in the Episcopalian church where people have a functionally biblical understanding of sexuality. But broadly speaking, the denomination as a whole is very, very progressive, very liberal in on America. a lot of different issues. Right. In America. It seems like the Anglican uh, Association outside America and South America and Africa are far more biblically uh, conservative than their American cousins. Yes. And th- th- that's an interesting trend, too. You see that in the Lutheran Church as well. So you had the big Lutheran vote mm-hmm. last year over... Uh, same-sex marriage, and the American churches overwhelmingly, I think 80% maybe of Lutheran churches in America, or uh, uh, Methodist churches in America, uh voted to either leave the Methodist church or be able to perform uh, same-sex ceremonies, whereas an overwhelming number of the global uh, churches in Africa and South America voted, no, we're not going to do same-sex ceremonies. And uh, that's a split that's starting to run down every denominational divide, mm-hmm. especially the main lines. You see a lot in the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, Episcopalian Church. Of course, you have um, Unitarian Church, Universalist sure. Church. Um, that's not really a surprise. But anyway, this is a split that runs down a lot of denominations. The Episcopalians are on the very liberal wing of this movement in the United States. So they invite Max Licato for whatever reason. I don't know why they invited Max Licato. Probably because he's a best-selling author, honestly. Mm -hmm. And they get up to the time where he's about to preach, which was this past Sunday. And all of a sudden they get petitions and social media pushback and op-eds written in the Episcopalian Cafe blog and Uh everything calling them out for inviting this person to be in the pulpit to take part in the Episcopalian service who is a bigot. And who would have guessed it's over sexuality? I mean, there's really two there's really two causes right now that will get you uninvited for things. If people perceive you as a racist or if people perceive you as a bigot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the ironic thing to me is that this is Max Licato we're talking about. Okay, Th- this is not some culture warrior. They, it's not like they invited John MacArthur to come <laughs> preach. Or Ben Shapiro, uh, you yeah, know, it's, for it's, his political views. Uh, this, is not, this is not a pugilist, okay? Uh-huh. They've invited uh, somebody who is pretty universally loved. I mean, a Christian teddy bear mm-hmm. to their pulpit. And they're getting this kind of pushback over the things that he's talked about. So they went ahead and they let him preach. Now, he preached virtually from San Antonio. He didn't actually go to the Washington National Cathedral. But anyway, they aired it, I guess, uh-huh. as their sermon for that week. And it was on you know, the power of the Holy Spirit to calm our lives during chaos. It was right. a very main line, straight down the fairway, 
feel-good kind of sermon. There was nothing objectionable about it, even if you're in this Episcopalian church. Right. But what was interesting is what happened afterwards. So the ranking authorities in the Episcopalian church, uh, two in particular, the bishop in Washington and the dean of the Washington National Cathedral, both, uh-huh. came out and issued statements apologizing for having Max Licato there. And I just want to read you two quotes and then respond a little bit about, you know, What do you think about this? So the first one, in my straight privilege, I failed to see and fully understand the pain he has caused. I failed to appreciate the depth of injury his words have had on many in the LGBTQ community. I failed to see the pain I was continuing. I was wrong and I am sorry. Here's the second quote. In the days since, I have heard from those who were not only wounded by things Max Licato has said and taught, but equally wounded by the decision to welcome him into the cathedral's pulpit. I didn't realize how deep those wounds were and how unsafe the world can feel. I should have known better. More than an apology, we seek to make amends. This is really interesting language coming from two high-ranking clergy men and women in the Episcopalian Church reflecting on this sermon. What do you think? Well, I have a couple of observations I'll make. You see a couple of red flag words in there that are real worldview clues. I mean, the idea of privilege, my heterosexual privilege, my straight privilege, and uh, then the idea of harming another group of people, uh, oppressive, well, actually in this case, not oppressive language, oppressive beliefs, and I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But those things really uh, are red flags to say we are dealing with a way of viewing the world that is not a biblical way of viewing the world. And I'll just say that straight out because that's not even contentious. It's a cultural Marxist way of viewing the world, and I don't use that word to smear anyone. It's simply the view that we all belong to identity groups and all identity groups are struggling for power. So the idea of privilege talks about power. The idea of harming someone because of what you believe or what you might have said talks about the oppressive relationship between different groups of people. So that's a worldview, clearly a trigger, that they're coming from this worldview, and that's never going to square with the biblical worldview because we have very different ideas about what you know, what comprises your identity and what privilege means. So that's my first observation is you, you realize that you're dealing with someone who's coming from a very incompatible worldview. Yeah, I think that's an important observation because it, as you said, is a, is a clue for the worldview behind the comments. Because I think part of the issue is Christians think of themselves as people who are against harming other people. Mm-hmm. People think, you know, Christians think about themselves as people of love, of people who are open and welcoming and accepting of people. But all of a sudden you listen to these statements, you say, okay, maybe I agree with some of those principles, but I completely disagree with these statements. But sometimes it's hard to know exactly what about them you disagree with or why exactly you disagree with what these people are saying. Yeah, I agree. It's it's really rooted for me in an identity issue, and that is 
the sense of in this case, and I want to say in this case because it's not just the LGBT community who has an identity group. Mm-hmm. You see this in politics, you'll see it in socioeconomic classes, you'll see it in racial categories. All these categories are identity groups. And for a Christian organization to be buying into the idea that your identity is formed by this particular group that you're in and not by Jesus Christ is a, is a huge clue to uh, just how far that thinking has come from the Bible. Yeah, I, I think there's two interesting points in what you've observed about these quotes. The first one being the identity question, and the second one being a question of harm. And I think both of these probably deserve more discussion than we can give here, but just to touch on these. Yeah, that identity question is so fascinating because part of our problem is, and I saw a great quote that somebody posted from Richard Hayes, who's written a great book on... Yeah. on uh, Ethics in the New Testament. It's called Moral Vision of the New Testament. Excellent book. And what, what he said in the quote was, part of the reason we have so much trouble discussing social issues in the church is because we have adopted American, contemporary American categories for discussing these issues. And this, is, this identity one is really a great example of that phenomenon. So the Bible teaches that people come from all kinds of different identity groups. The Bible is not blind to the fact that um, people have different pasts, they have different experiences, they have different things that identify them. You see this all through Scripture. So uh, one of the things we talked about in the podcast last week was in the church in Philippi, we see right off the bat that there are three very different kinds of people. You have Mm -hmm. a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer who all convert to start the church in Philippi. In the book of Acts, for example, in chapter 6, when you see the seven deacons who are named at the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem, their names and their descriptions tell us that they are from very different backgrounds. Mediterranean, Mm -hmm. all over the place, probably Greek, at least Hellenized Jew, somebody from Africa. Um, So we see that, and one of the questions that runs through the entire course of the New Testament is how Jews and Gentiles should relate to each other. So this is not an issue that the Bible is blind to, and it's not an issue that the Bible doesn't deal with. But we have forgotten that there are ways of dealing with these issues outside of what we've developed in the last 150 years, this kind of cultural Marxist oppressor versus oppressed, uh, intersectional identity groups played off against other intersectional identity groups. This, these are not categories that are functional in the New Testament descriptions of the church. You see all over Paul's letters in John, uh, in, in the first chapter of James, when you talk about favoritism, mm-hmm. that one of the things that's true inside the church is that we renounce our outside identities in the order of how we consider ourselves. So that doesn't mean that you become not who you are. It's that you become a Christian first. So Christian's identity is as a member of the body of Christ. And this has all kinds of implications. It has a philosophical implication in terms of how we see each other, but I think it also has an implication in terms of how we engage with the whole panorama of American identity groups that has become the fad right now. Right. Yeah, I, here, I'm going to make this contention, see what you think about this. Our cultural 
uh, milieu has a lot of categories and a lot of identity groups. I'm going to suggest that the categories that Jesus brought to this discussion were very simple. The category of lost and found, which spans socioeconomic, cultural, skin color, gender, everything. Jesus brought the categories of those who were found and those who were lost. And I think when we, re when we let go of those categories and enter into a different paradigm, we've, we've already lost our effectiveness in this conversation. The second thing you pointed out, I think, is good, the idea of harm. And when I look again to Jesus, it seems to me that Jesus was sensitive to people. He was sympathetic. He was even empathetic at times. But I remember what he said to Pontius Pilate. He said, for this reason, I was born. And for this reason, I came into the world to testify to the truth. And I'm going to make a second contention. First, that the categories of the Bible are lost and found. And second, that the truth is not harmful. Just the opposite, that the truth is healing. Give you a simple example. I may go to the doctor and the doctor says, I'm looking at your tests right now and you have terminal cancer, Terry. And I would say, that is so hurtful to, how could you say that to me? You have destroyed my world. You shattered my whole thought of myself. Now, obviously I wouldn't have that reaction. I would say that's hard words, but I need to know the truth. Well, and there would be a process of accepting that right. news, but it would be the process of accepting the news and acting on it rather than the process right. of denying the news repeatedly. So to the to the you know the two issues of identity and harm, I would say identity in Christian is lost and found, and the idea of harm is truth is not harmful. So I, I agree with you there, and I and I think that uh, it's easy to it's easy to take that as an operating paradigm and then get completely and totally lost with what to do about that right. in a situation like this. So. Let's run through the claim that's being made both in the opposition to someone like Max Licato, and he's just an example, like we said, but a particularly egregious example, I think. But then also uh, in your everyday life where you're trying to do your best to love those around you and be a good neighbor and be a good person and good citizen, and you have people who are basically saying to you, well, if you think that, you're not a good person, or if you think that, you must not love me, or if you think that then you are denying who I am. How do, you, how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, before we get there, I want to make this observation because I think the church has been trying to tiptoe along the top of the fence for a long time. And you've seen the church be very careful about what we say. And in fact, even not saying certain things. I think this incident lets you, lets you know, and this is a realization that just every Christian needs to come to this realization as quickly as possible. It isn't just about what you've said. It's what you actually believe. He wasn't, he wasn't boycotted because of what he said in that sermon. Mm -hmm. He was boycotted because of what the beliefs that he holds. So then what do you do about it? Knowing that you're going to go into the public uh, square and you're going to have some people who are going to call you hateful and hurtful simply because of what you believe. And here's a couple of ways that people have approached this. I, I do see the church approaching it by uh, leaning back on niceness. We'll call it love. I want to be really careful with that word because I don't see a lot of biblical love, but I do see a lot of compassion, and that's a good thing. 
And so the idea of I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, I don't want to you to have the perception that you have been harmed, and so I will curtail my speech. Mm-hmm. And then we'll let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit wants to do, and I'm just going to try to be nice to everybody. Yeah, You've seen uh, the approach of one that I like better, Tim Keller. Keller doesn't stop from speaking the truth, but he starts with areas of commonality. And I like that. He'll start with the idea of human rights, things we agree on, and then point out how that is part and parcel of the Christian worldview, not the cultural Marxist worldview. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a way to start that discussion as long as you continue it. And he does. Uh, third would be, uh, you just preached about Jonah a couple of weeks ago, is the approach of Jonah. And that is, repent or you're going to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So I've given yes. you a spectrum there. What do you think about it does, that spectrum? It, it does make me wonder, kind of two points here. The first one being, I think there, there's a phenomenon, I think of human experience, but certainly uh-huh. of the American human experience, where narratives, especially about your enemies, last a lot longer than their accuracy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think we've had this narrative of, Christians are terrible to gay people. They're terrible to the LGBTQ community. Parents are kicking their kids out. And, uh, you know, Christians are responsible for suicides and hatred and self-harm and all of that. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's inaccurate to say that those things have happened in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Because they have. But I do think it's inaccurate to pretend like that's the primary stance of the church in America towards the LGBTQ community. I don't think that's true. I think it's a useful narrative if Mm -hmm. you want the church to change, uh, if you want them to not say things like homosexuality is sinful. Um, But I don't think that's an accurate narrative. I think the, I don't know if I want to call it a bigger problem, but another problem is that so many in the church have refused to say what the Bible says about sexuality in the name of the first two options that you've given. Mm -hmm. Either the Christianity of niceness, which I want to come back to because I think that is really a great idea to explore um, and something that we're all tempted to because we all want to be nice to other people. Uh, And the conflation of niceness and love. Right. But then in the second case, and I think there's a little bit more merit to this, not mentioning controversial things until you need to, and then never actually mentioning them. So I want to I want to make a point here, just in case we don't come back to it, that in the Keller approach, this second approach of trying to speak to commonality, trying to reason together from things that we agree on towards the Christian worldview, is a great tactic. Mm-hmm. And 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 I say that for two reasons. First of all, I think it's compelling. Yes. Intellectually and emotionally. But secondly, it hits on a biblical principle that people in the third category often forget, which is you should never expect non-Christian people to act like Christians. Right. Here's the point. You you see this all over the New Testament. You don't act like a Christian because you don't have the Holy Spirit, because you don't trust in Christ, because you're not a member of the body of Christ. So we can never as Christians expect people to reform their behavior and then become Christians. Right. We expect people to accept the gospel, to be reconciled to God, and then their life begins to change. Right. We should never preach a gospel that requires people to change before the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Absolutely. And 
you know, the whole clean yourself up and come to Christ is a false gospel. Right. It's a, it's, it's impossible for human beings to do that. And I think a lot of the harm that's done is that kind of preaching uh-huh. where it's like, it's very legalistic. It's very, uh, individualistic. In uh-huh. fact, it's, it's really an anti-gospel in the sense of you need to make better life choices so that God will accept you. Right. That's anti-gospel. Right. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. You can't clean your life up. Mm-hmm. You can't get better. So you must surrender to Christ. So I want to, I, I say that because the second model of kind of the Keller, let's start with what we agree on, should always be the way that we share the gospel. It should always be the way that we look at people who maybe disagree with us, people mm-hmm. that are not believers, people that we're trying to engage with, is not to start and demand that they agree with every tenet of the Christian faith. It's right. to take the opportunity to share the good news of what Christ has done for them. Mm-hmm. So that second option, though, can also be a waiting game that never comes full circle. Right. So we avoid saying what uh, the Bible teaches on things like sexuality or whatever else. There's a lot of these issues. Well, greed, uh, gossip. I mean, we're talking about LGBTQ community because of this example, but really that's nothing special in the New Testament it is part of things that we all struggle with and we all need to be convicted of, but yes. But I think the problem is a lot of people are trying to reason through sexuality without any of the other markers of a Christian worldview. Right. So if, you're, if your tacit idea is to make sense of a biblical worldview on sexuality— but to accept the premises of our broader American culture when it comes to individuality and sexuality, that is a totally bankrupt that way of reasoning. That is a failed project before you begin. You can't get to godly conclusions from worldly premises. Exactly. And one of the worldly premises, there's a lot of them that we saw in these two statements. This is complete worldly reasoning. And they're not even trying to make a biblical argument. They are responding to someone who is making a biblical argument with worldly mm-hmm. reasoning. Mm-hmm. But they're wearing the robes of the clergy. Right. But you know, one of the things that people just tacitly accept is that indulging your sexuality in any way is uh, a, a, an unquestionable good. Right. Or is a source of your identity. People do this having no relation to homosexuality or transgenderism. People do this in perfectly more acceptable heterosexual ways as well. Um, And we're not as sensitive to those issues because it's more normal. Mm -hmm. But it betrays the same misunderstanding of how we've been made. The thing I think is true about most Christians when they think about this topic is that they have accepted that Sexuality is what God says, but they haven't accepted why God said what he says about sexuality. Right. There's almost like the assumption that God didn't realize that we were going to have people who were born with attraction to the same sex or people who were born feeling like they really don't match. Their mm-hmm. gender doesn't match their biological sex or you know all these things. God knew this, and he understood this, and he made humanity— and of course, we believe that um, you know a lot of things that we experience as human beings are the result of sin in the world. So we are not the very good status of creation right now that God declared in the garden, mm-hmm. or that we will be after Christ returns. But 
it takes a little bit of um, biblical reasoning to understand why God has said this. God set, set up the world and he created humanity to where your fulfillment sexually is designed to occur within marriage to a person of the opposite sex for life. And any deviation from that can feel perfectly natural to you because mm-hmm. of sin. But it is not God's design. Mm-hmm. And here's where the difficulty comes. Why is it not God's design? And this is kind of a stifling question because if you think that it's just not God's design because he arbitrarily thought that marriage would be a good idea, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to be really hard to understand uh, why we're called to lay down the same kinds of regulations that God does on sexuality. Mm-hmm. It's like, I might as well just not mention it. Because if I don't have any reason why God would say this, then why would I make you abide by these rules? Right. But this is like, I heard this great example the other day. This is like, so a, a robber goes up to somebody and they say, give me your wallet. And they, and they put a, a gun in their back. And the person being robbed says, oh, I don't believe in guns. And the robber says, oh, okay, I guess I'll go on to somebody else then. And so they put down the gun. It's like, okay, just because somebody else doesn't believe what God says the universe is created to be like doesn't mean the universe isn't created that way. God tells us over and over in his word, the way he created is for our flourishing. It is for our good. It is for our joy. It is for our wholeness. You can't have wholeness and joy and uh, the, the fulfillment of living as God designed if you don't do the things that God commands you to do. So it's not a matter of God's arbitrary decision to make one man, one woman marriage, have sex within marriage. It's that you were designed to work that way. And when you don't do that, it could feel good for a little while, but it is you're not going to experience the wholeness that God has designed you to embody. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's worth, if, if you are listening to this and you disagree, in other words, you you say would be on the side of the people that say criticized uh, Max Cicada or the decision to bring him there to speak. I would simply say, don't settle. If you, if you want to argue against the biblical conception, at least understand the biblical conception. This is not arbitrary. Uh, you do bad things, so you're a bad person. Uh, you know, this is not a straw man. I think your point's well made. Understanding what the Bible actually says about sin in general is worth knowing if you're going to disagree with it. And I would just challenge anybody to actually understand why God uh, made us the way God made us, the way he orchestrated this world. Now, however, kind of swinging back a little bit, you're going to have some people that uh, in this particular case say, well, God made me in this particular way. And therefore, I think that that is good problematic argument, but nevertheless, I mean, it's characterized. I mean, that, that statement really could use a lot of support, but saying that is good. And if you don't think that, Max Lucado, then you are a bad person. So then we flip it back around and we say, well, how then do we react to that? We realize we're not dealing with a biblical worldview, but you're dealing with someone who has a worldview. It's just a hostile worldview in this situation. And one of the ways, to get back to something you mentioned before, is one of the ways we tend to react to that, because we are compassionate, we're called to be compassionate people, 
although we certainly have not always lived up to it, nor do we individually always live up to that. But that is our calling, is, well, we don't want you to feel bad. We would like to do that. We want to be nice. We want to sometimes bend over backwards to be extra nice to you. I'll throw this out and, and say this. I think I'm all in favor of being nice to people. I'm all in favor of compassion. I'm all in favor of uh, treating people uh, with dignity. I, I don't think that you can get anything else out of the gospel. Anytime we don't do that, we have failed to live up to our calling. But here's the thing. Sometimes I think that we treat people really nicely, very kindly. We don't push back on things, and it's because we hope that they will like us. Mm-hmm. We try to defuse this disagreement of worldviews by doing nice things and think if we do enough nice things that they'll come to their senses and say, gosh, these are really nice people. Yeah. I only have one word to say to that. They crucified Jesus for being a nice person and healing thousands and thousands of people. So I think that's really the Christian equivalent of uh, delusional thinking and virtue signaling. And I would just say, don't, don't be nice to people thinking they'll like you. Here's why I say you be compassionate, you be nice, because that's who the Holy Spirit is making us to be. Yes. And, you know, the, the phrase speaking the truth in love is one that gets thrown out here a lot. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to step back from the way that we communicate for a minute, because I think I think we want to I think we want to talk about that in its own right. But aside from how we communicate for a moment, just just the the brass tacks of the situation. You're right. When it comes to harm, the overarching principle of harm, we have on the one side people who are asserting somebody like Max Licato is harming LGBTQ people either in the congregation or, you know, people who are paying attention to these things or people who look to the Washington National Cathedral as a symbol of some kind. He is harming those people by believing something about their lifestyle, about their desires, about their actions. Well, I think one of the bedrock principles we need to remember is it is far more harmful for you to live in rebellion to God's design than it is to hear somebody tell you that you are sinful or that you are wrong. Um, And that's a principle. I don't know how many Christians really believe that. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to abdicate responsibility. And again, I'm not talking about how we deliver this news. I'm talking about the, fa- the reality of it. It's much better to abdicate by saying, I'm going to be extra kind to this person. I'm not going to force the issue. I'm not going to press the issue. I'm going to let them do what they want to do because it seems like that makes them happy. And that may be true in the short term. But in the long term, that is far more harmful than having uh, relational strife because you've said something that God has said that they disagree with. Yeah, you know, I've told this story before, but you know the, the two comedians, Penn and Teller, and, and uh, the tall guy is a really militant atheist. And this, there was a story that after one of his shows, uh, a lady came up and gave him a Bible and somebody asked him, boy, did you unload on her, you know, because she knew you were an atheist. And he had really had a surprising answer. He said, no, uh, obviously I don't agree. I'm, a, I'm an atheist. But if I believed what she believed, how much would you have to hate somebody 
to not tell them about it. Well, and that's that. That's always been a compelling point of view for me because we do believe something so powerful. I mean, the gospel is being reconciled to God, being forgiven of all your sins, and knowing that you'll be with Him forever. And the flip side of that is eternal damnation and destruction. But I think what I'm saying is, but functionally we walk around like the atheist, let's just say, to get off the topic of sexuality for a minute, the atheist is enjoying their life. Why, you know, why cause problems for a person who seems fairly moral and good and all that? Well, it's because we functionally aren't believing what the Bible says about the universe. And that's easy to do. It is. And it's very hard to communicate that in a way that is loving and that is right. But uh, the answer is not to pretend like the world is not the way God has said it is. And I think back to the topic of sexuality, I think most people are, and I, I feel this way sometimes too, I think most people are a little bit puzzled by the fact that the Bible says that sinning is bad. But you look around and you see the people sinning having a pretty good time doing it. Mm -hmm. So how do you avoid just being a legalistic killjoy going around telling people this is not the way to live when they say, yeah, it is. I lived for, you know, 10 years repressing this. And now that I've finally accepted who I am, I'm happier than I've ever been before. Yeah. And I actually am just going to push back on that. And uh, I may be wrong about this, but I actually don't believe that. I don't believe that mythical person exists. Oh, I think people delude themselves into thinking that. But if you just watch the course of people's lives, I can speak to this in my own life. I've been very happy in my sin at times, but it did not last. Everybody has a need deep inside. And sometimes the people who have the biggest need deep inside are the ones that protest the loudest. Sure. And I have been that person before protesting against Christianity. I came to Christ later in my life, I protested against it. And I think that was a way to just keep pushing down that need. I don't think there is a human being who is joyous in their sin. Forever. Yeah. I think, th I think we need to admit that people can be joyous in their sin temporarily. Sure. Or happy, if we want to distinguish those two terms. But yeah, I think that uh, sin is fun for a while or else nobody would do it. Right. But I think biblically... God makes it pretty clear that it's not that way forever. And I, I think it's pretty clear, too, that every person does have a desire deep down to be reconciled to God, whether they have barricaded that desire with other things, whether they have anesthetized themselves to that desire through other things, whether they have denied that to where they've told themselves over and over and over again that they don't need that, um, to, to the point that, you know, we see in the Bible, if you resist long enough the voice of the Holy Spirit, it becomes harder to hear what the Spirit is saying, convicting in your heart. Regardless of how that happens, at the end of the day, all people have been created with a desire and with a longing to be reunited with God. And I think we need to remember that as Christians, because we're going to go into a world that is going to call us hateful and hurtful, sometimes just because of what we believe to be true. And I think we need to remember that we're being faithful to spread the truth. Now, let me give you the caveat. I'm not saying the first time I talk to Cole, the main thing I talk to you about is, hey, I can see you have a major greed problem or you have a sexuality disorder. And let's talk about that. I, I'm not talking about anything that silly. I'm talking about speaking the good news, but I'm talking about eventually 
when the time is right, talking about the whole counsel of God, what this really requires from each one of us. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's important for us to remember that. If we are wrong, if our worldview and our story is wrong, then I would expect the gospel, as, as the world gets more prosperous, you would expect Christianity to die out because people are happier, longer living, they can live their lives the way they want to, and it's not like it was in the 16th century when maybe you needed God because you didn't have good medicine. You would think Christianity would wane as time goes on, and that hasn't happened. And so I think we need to remember that the truth of what, what we believe is being played out in history as well as in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and I, and I think this comes back to the core issue. So if people's if people's desire, if their innate desire, whether they know it or not, whether they can put their finger on it or not, is to be reconciled to God, then deal with that first. Like yeah. we said, everybody's innate desire is not to live the way that God has designed them to live uh, because we believe that comes by being in Christ, by being reconciled by the work of the Holy Spirit. So I would say it's very important that we remember that the gospel has to come first. Evangelism is not a matter of behavior change. Evangelism is a matter of will you repent and put your trust in Christ? Yeah. And then we expect the Spirit to begin working on people and like it is all of us, you know, things that we will see clearly 10 years from now that we don't see now in our own hearts and in our own lives. And uh, the other thing, though, is we can't sacrifice teaching what God says to Christian people in the church mm -hmm. for the hope of evangelism with somebody not in the church. And this is something I feel pretty passionately about. Sometimes we mute our preaching and teaching for Christians, and we put the church on a diet so that we can give a message that is satisfying and appealing to non-Christians. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a matter of knowing who you're speaking to. Right. You, you have to know that. And uh, this is a matter of who's sitting in your pews, obviously. And what if you're preaching or if you're in a one-on-one -on -one or if you're in a small group or whatever, you have to know the setting. But, uh, you know, the gospel comes first for people who are not Christians. But within the church, within people that are Christians, we need to be teaching about what the Bible says about sexuality. Mm -hmm. I agree. Hey, you know, back to the evangelism for a minute. Uh, one of the ways people think about evangelism is I'm going to be nice, I'm going to be compassionate, I'm going to be kind to my neighbors, and they will say, wow, that person's really different, and they're a Christian, maybe I ought to check out Christianity. I'm, I'm going to say something that may offend some people, but I, I want to reject that. Not that I don't agree with being nice and kind to your neighbors, to anybody, actually, and uh, the hope is that they would notice that. I think you have to take one more step. I definitely think you need to do that. So I'm not arguing against being kind so you, and nice and compassionate. So you're not, you're not negating, you know, they will know you're Christians by your love. No, I am not negating. Well, that was probably spoken of my love for fellow believers. But leave that aside for a minute. Uh, I think that's a powerful witness. People like to join groups that are appealing. But you are saying it's not... People will know you're Christian by the way you love me, and I get to define what love means. Right. What I'm saying is being nice to people, being kind to people is a good thing, but it is not enough. It's not a sufficient thing. I think the biblical witness, you have to take one more step 
And that step is not to pull out your Bible and say, let's get a Bible study here and let me tell you everything that's wrong with you. That's not what I'm going to say next. What I am going to say next is you also have to tell them your story. If you aren't excited to say, you know what? I have to tell you what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Mm -hmm. That's the next step. It's not enough just to be nice to people. It's important. It's not enough just to be kind. It's important. Yeah. But we have to go one more step and say, you know what? Jesus Christ completely changed my life. Yes. You and have to take that next step. Yeah, and I think if that's not there, it's you don't have a compelling way to share what God can do for them. You don't have a compelling way to share what God has done for you. I think, you know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul lists off a bunch of sins and he says, you know, some of you were swindlers and greedy and sexually immoral and homosexual and all of this stuff. All, all different things. Yeah. And he says, but you were washed and you were sanctified. And that's what some of you were, but you're not those things anymore. Now, does that mean they never had another thought like that? No. What he's saying is once you have been transformed, you start to live a different kind of life. Yeah, you completely change directions in your life. I've always been struck by one of the things that Rosaria Butterfield says. I think this is in Secrets of an Unlikely Convert. She says, you know, people in Corinth and people in Ephesus in the first generation of the church would have all left something behind Mm -hmm. to become Christians, whether it's their family, former identity, practices, whatever, social prestige. And she's like, you know, when I left... A relationship with a woman, I knew exactly what I was leaving behind to be obedient to God. The problem with a lot of Christians is they don't know of anything that they have left behind to become a Christian. And the point is, the point is not uh, that some Christians do and some Christians don't. It's that every person, whether you became a, you walked down the aisle when you were six and prayed a prayer. Um, and owned your faith after that as you grew up, or whether you come to Christ late in life, every Christian should think about what it was that had to change in their life to be obedient to Christ. And that is one of the most compelling things that you can share with somebody else. Right. Because that's what God has done for you. Right. I agree completely with that. I, I do think that's the key step, is to recognize in ourselves that we too used to be, fill in the blank. Because every single one of us had at least one of the things in that list that Paul gave. I mean, we, we all had that in our life. Sometimes we feel it more keenly uh, than other times as to what we what the trajectory that we were on compared to the trajectory we are now on following Christ to eternal life. But I do think it's important to share that. I think if we just are nice to people, we become uh, really inoffensive, nice people, and don't expect that to be very effective witness. On the other hand, you don't have to be the world's greatest apologist. You don't have to know your Bible inside and out and quote every verse. And you don't have to beat people over the head with it. But we do have to be able to say, I follow Jesus Christ because I was blind and now I see. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. 
and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.